0: Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today knows what it's like to live a life of choosing courage over comfort. Gina Thomas is a woman hungry and thirsty for justice and finding full satisfaction in the life lived for Christ. Her story includes years of serving as a missionary in Central America, then coming back to the States with her husband and entering the world of foster care as their mission field. Today Gina and I talk about how one phone call asking Gina and her family to foster a five-year-old girl from Honduras put Gina up close and personal with the border crisis as she saw firsthand the way migrant children experience trauma beyond what we could ever imagine. Gina and I also talk about her new book coming out, Separated by the Border. In it, she weaves together the stories of a birth mother and foster mother and shows the human face of the immigrant and refugee crisis, the challenges of the immigration and foster care system, and the power of motherly love. Gina, thank you so much um, just for joining me today and giving up your morning. I know you have are a busy mom, and I just appreciate you joining me today on the podcast. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me. So, Gina, can you just tell a little bit about, before we dig into your story, just tell about you, your everyday life, what where
1: you're at right now, where you live, all of that, your family. Yeah, Um, so I am a mom of a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. Um, we moved to Tennessee less than a year ago. Uh, we live in Chattanooga. And, um, and I work at a nonprofit that um, does holistic development work, um, so poverty alleviation. Um, and I've been married to my husband, Andrew, for over 10 years now. Okay, and you've done a lot in those ten years
0: <laughs> reading your book I'm like they've only been married ten years. Wow, <laughs> a lot of um, so yeah, that's kind of the surface level of who you are but but deeper than that, I mean you're an author, and like I said you've a speaker and you've had ten years of a lot um, of experience with other cultures and races and immigrants, um, and so that's what we'll talk about today, yeah. so um kind of take before we get into your story. Um, and how you got involved with the border crisis and immigrants. Take us back to um, just kind of you were raised in the United States and that time of your life, and then how you had this interest in because um, you spent a lot of time in Central America, were a missionary in Mexico. Like, take us through all of that period,
1: um, sure. kind of in a nutshell. Sure. So, um, I was born, um, in upstate New York and, um, my, my mother is 100% Italian and my father is 100% American. (laughs) Um, so I should say she's Italian, she's Italian American. Um, her, her parents, um, came to the United States when, um, they were in their teens and twenties. Um, and so she, she was raised, raised here, but, um, spoke Italian first. And, um, we lived in a a community in upstate New York where there were a lot of other Italians as well. Um, and my grandfather started a pizzeria when, um, long before I was born. Um, so I grew up uh, in a pizzeria, (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, I was there all the time. My, my brother and sister and I, uh, and cousins, and we would uh, do dishes and wipe the tables down. And uh, I remember uh, being so excited when the people who were there, the customers would give us like a quarter or a dime for wiping the tables. And we would just run to the candy store, um, and go get candy. But, um, So I grew up, uh, also grew up, so my my mother was Catholic growing up, but we, uh, when I was growing up, she had since um, become a Protestant Christian. And so that was kind of always an interesting um, dichotomy between my Italian family and our family, because we didn't go to the Catholic church. We would go christmas and easter but we wouldn't go you know regularly um we were we were constantly involved in our evangelical church so um it was a very interesting um i guess faith culture to grow up in because i saw my aunt who was a catholic nun um she's my great aunt. Um, but she was constantly fighting for the rights of the poor, um, in a different town, but not, not too far away. Um, and so she, she really gave me this, this view of, um, what it means to do social justice, even though I didn't have those terms or phrases for that, um, at that time. Um, but she was part
0: of, part of your journey with like planning that in your heart. And, um, absolutely. Because then you really did have a desire, like, sounds like after you graduated from high school, is that when you went to Central America? I know you went to Nicaragua, Honduras, all of that. Was that, um, kind of because that was planted in your heart to, you wanted to serve the poor and,
1: Yeah, I mean, it probably was that Um, her, her twin brother was a Catholic priest, and they both um, had lived in Central America for a little while themselves. Well, my my great uncle did. Um, But both of them spoke Spanish, they learned Spanish, so they knew Italian. English. And then they also learned Spanish so that they could have mass in Spanish um, in the town that they lived in. Um, And so when I was, when I was growing up and um, learning Spanish myself, we would always practice Spanish with each other. And I remember um, my great uncle having um, someone come with him, like a Spanish speaker come with him often to our family meals. And so we would talk with each other a lot. Um, And when I was in yeah, I was in high school when I first went to Nicaragua. Okay, um, I was 16, and that really just kind of opened up a path of loving Central America and wanting to to get back there. So mm,
0: that just came. My daughter, I have a 16 year old. She just went to Nicaragua. Oh wow! Uh, oh, three months ago, and then her and I are going back um, next month. So oh, that's she, neat. She fell in love with it, Um, and it was, so just reading kind of your path through that, too, it just reminded me Hmm. of her. So how long were you in Nicaragua then when you were six? Was that just a short-term trip, mission trip or something?
1: Yeah, that was a short-term trip, and then um, when I was in college, I took a semester off from college, and... um, it was like in between sophomore and junior year. And I, uh, I went and lived in Nicaragua for about three months. Okay. Um, and then after that, I, once I graduated, um, I actually went to Italy for a little while and then from there went back to Central America, went to Honduras and taught there for about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah.
0: So how, I mean, you're, um, I mean, people can't see you in this, but they'll see your biopic. I mean, you're a white American woman. Um, how being in those other cultures did God start to work in your heart of just seeing like poverty
1: and race and differences and all of that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it was much easier for me to see those differences in other countries than to recognize that it was right here in my own uh, country, um, because the differences are so obvious. Um, and also because uh, at the time, um, I wasn't really aware of how, um, homogenous my circle of friends were, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, even going to, uh, college university, even though there was, there were other friends, you know, diverse friends about, there's still a, a white culture that persists and, um, and it's easy to, for that to be invisible when you grow up in it, um, And so even though I kind of knew I was different because of my immigrant um, family in that sense and the Italian culture, I still didn't really see Americans as having a culture or white Americans as having a culture. And so, um, I think that was, that was kind of a big shift, um, living in another country and seeing, you know, seeing some of those things. But then an even bigger shift came when I came back to the States, um, and started seeing a lot of, um just the disparities between race and economic statuses, um, in, in our own country.
0: That's interesting. So you feel like being overseas, overseas made when you came back, you open your eyes more to just around you, that it's here too. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yeah. Which is so interesting. Cause I, I do think, I mean, there's so many things we can talk about, but just, you know, with short term mission trips being good or bad or, but I do think what they do is open our eyes so much more, um, not necessarily we're going there just to this, you know, white savior, we're going to go save them, but it does open our own eyes to what's around us. Um, so that's so interesting that you say that.
1: Yeah, Um, it really does. My first book, uh, Smoldering Wick is all about short-term missions and, uh, and, and for a while living as a long-term missionary in Mexico, I was pretty ready to just be like, Guys, we gotta stop doing this. This is ridiculous. <laughs>
0: um, I know, and that's what I'm like. Gosh, I could. I. I yeah. see. That I was reading a little bit about that book last night. I'm like, I could talk to her just about that because there's so. I mean, unless you're like purposely reading and learning about it, you just think, oh yeah, short-term mission trips are great. We're yeah. gonna go, but I mean, when helping hurts, all those. It's like. Ah, there's a lot more and it's not yeah. always the best thing. So I ex- I have not read your smoldering wick book, but I am excited to read that one too, just to get your view on that being a, sh- a long-term missionary. Um, oh, and then you also, you have your math, what, you have a master's in international development also. So you're, you're yeah. educated, you're in this, so you know <laughs> like what. So speaking of that with the long-term mission trip, so you did end up in Mexico with your husband, correct? Mm-hmm. For f- over four
1: years <laughs> serving as
0: a long-term missionary.
1: Yep. Yep, we were married seven months uh when we moved to to Mexico. Okay. Um, and we were there for four and a half years. And okay. our Son was actually born in Mexico. So why, why
0: Mexico and tell us a little bit about what you did there in those four and a half years. And then what brought you back to the States?
1: So um, we, when I lived in Nicaragua, I lived with a missionary family that was there. And um, that family actually contacted uh, me right before I got married and said, Hey, we're in Mexico now. And we're looking for English teachers because we have a a middle school starting. Um, And so, that was kind of the, the catalyst for us getting down there. So when we first moved, um, we were teachers, uh, I taught middle school English and then a high school started a couple years later. And so then I started teaching high school English. Um, and then, um, my husband, Andrew, he was teaching PE the first year. Um, but we both were really kind of struggling with just being teachers in general. Um, it's never something that's, become easy to me, even though I've done it quite a bit. Um, and, and it really wasn't something that, that he flourished in. And so, um, we had talked about trying to figure something else out that would, um, uh, we really wanted to see like community development stuff happen. And so he is a rock climber and there's a rock climbing place there, uh, in Northern Mexico called Portrero Chico and um a lot of rock climbers from all over the world come to that area to climb it's a really beautiful place to climb um and so we kind of thought through this this idea of starting a coffee shop where um, Mexican, local Mexicans and international community could come together um, because that really wasn't something that was happening in the town. Um, it, it pretty much like the groups kind of stayed to themselves. And so we had friends in both groups and so we really wanted to see them connect with each other and um, and the coffee shop really was a place that everyone was welcome. And, and, and really, we, we got to see some really beautiful things happen there, um, where, uh, locals got to really understand why people would even come there, um, to climb. And we got to take a lot of, uh, the youth group from our church climbing. Um, and then we got to see, um, people from, from other countries, especially United States and, and Canada, uh, really get to mingle with some of the locals there and try different foods and be exploratory and understand the culture better. Um, so it was just a really beautiful, beautiful thing.
0: Very cool. So, like you said, then you also had your son um, mm-hmm. over there, correct? Yeah. Um, and so, how long then did you live over there with him? And then, what brought you back to the United States?
1: Yeah. So he was born um, and then. he he was two and a half years old when we moved back to the United States. And the reason that we did that, there was a couple of different reasons. One was we, um, had only intended on staying about five years in Mexico. Um, and then another was that I had, when he was nine months old, I started my graduate program. Most of it was online, um, except for a couple of weeks of residency a year. And so, um, we knew that when I was done with that, we'd need to start paying back student loans and um, we were we were living off of um, very little support um, and so there was no way that with that support that we could pay back um, okay. loans so that was really the biggest catalyst for it um, okay. and then on top of that, he was two and a half and didn't get to hang out with family very much, and so we were really feeling homesick. It was time
0: time to go back and you share in your book and that's what we'll get into your book um, called Separated by the Border that will be released next month, October 29th. Um, Mm -hmm. But you share in your book, just that it's, it's really interesting how just God used even that time to prepare you for what he had later in your life um, when you fostered. And when you fostered um, the little girl from Honduras, but you just share how that was like such, you saw just a little glimpse of how complicated it was just to get your son like like passports, and he was born in Mexico, and get him back in America. Like all yes. of that, just paperwork, which is nothing compared to what right. others have to go to. But just your little bit of frustration there. That's right. To get back, so you did get back. You're back in the states, um, and then just kind of just share a little bit of your life. Then I knew um, one thing you had wanted to adopt um, a child, and is that where when you got back to the United States? Kind of tell me where you're at in your life and what's next and all of that.
1: Yeah. So when we got back to the States, um, Cade was two and a half and, um, we had been planning on adopting. We had hoped to adopt in Mexico, but it didn't work out. Um, and then really through my international development program, I started seeing things a lot differently than I had before. And I, um, started to kind of question like what, what's happening here in my own country, um, that maybe we can get involved in with vulnerable children. And so that really led us to foster care.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And that we, we started... Not long after we moved home, we started in on the classes and it takes, at least in North Carolina, it took, uh, there was a 10 week course that we took. And then from there, it takes even longer because you have to go through home studies and do all these other yes. things. Um, we,
0: we foster, we live in Oklahoma. We fostered okay. two children, um, okay. and it's about a similar process. It's not okay. like just sign up and you get a child. Right. It's,
1: right. It's, a, it's very definitely
0: long. a process you have to yes. go through.
1: And, and well worth it too. And certainly something yes. that they need to do by, Absolutely, by all means, yes. but certainly not just, uh, yeah, sign your name and and you're done. Um, and so that, um, that actually got postponed because once we finished, um, our classes, uh, we found out we were pregnant with, um, my daughter. Okay. And so, um, So then the social workers were just like, okay, just contact us when you're ready. Um, And so we just kind of waited a while until we felt ready to to do that again. And then we also struggled with um, just economically. We were trying to find jobs and thought that we could find them easily and felt like if we spoke two languages, this would not be a problem, but it was a really challenging thing. And you
0: have a master's. I mean, you're, you're educated. (laughs) It's not like, yeah, which, which I was so surprised but i appreciate you sharing that part of your story that you you guys had to go on um state aid on welfare for a while um yeah, how did. how did god use that time of your life to kind of prepare you or have your eyes open wider more empathetic um, cuz i'm sh- i'm sure he did so share a little bit about that
1: yeah I, I love that you're asking that question i think it was um i think it was huge i, I still think it's huge I, there are mm-hmm. moments right now where i'm like oh man we don't have enough money for this certain thing um, And it's just, it's just a a matter of perspective. Right. And so I remember one day, um, this was just a tough day being on at that point. Um, we were on food stamps and WIC, um, women and uh, infants and children. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, I was like, we're going to get off. We're going to get off. I'm going to stop using these vouchers. Um, and I just kind of melted, uh, as I often do when, when we're in this ec- economic funks. Um, I melted down and I was like, oh, we don't have the food that we need. Like, where? What are we going to eat tonight? What are we going to do? I don't know what to do. And I felt like the Lord was just like... Um, you know, I just felt bad. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to go use these wick uh, vouchers. And I came back home after going to the grocery store and I laid everything out on the countertop and, um, and I was just depressed because I was yeah. like, I don't want to be on this. I don't want to do this. And I felt like the Lord was just like, you've asked, you've asked for a feast and mm-hmm. it's right here before you mm-hmm. and you're complaining because of how it came. Yeah. And like those moments in the old Testament where, you know, Israelites are complaining about manna. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was in so many ways, it's just so deepening, um, of my faith and helping me to really understand, um, that God is our provider, first of all. Um, but it's not a job that provides, it's not, um, you know, family or friends or anything, but, but God is our provider. Um, and he can provide even through government assistance that everybody else looks down on. That's okay. Uh, he's still going to provide, and it's not okay for me to be prideful and say that I, I can't receive food in this way. Um, and on top of that, it's really helping me right now because, um, working with, um, In in, in an organization that that works with poverty alleviation, I think it's really important for me to recognize and to see and to remember those moments um, of just utter frustration and struggle and to remember that again, like you were saying, like it wasn't anything that we did necessarily. There are systems in place, and sometimes those systems don't work for you. Or sometimes the economy fails and there's not jobs. Um, it's not always horrible choices that we've made that have gotten us to the place that we are. And I think that's super important to remember in poverty alleviation practices.
0: Yeah. I mean, because we're so quick to judge, say, judge yeah. people that are on welfare and think, they don't want to work or they just um, are yeah. lazy or, yeah. and your story and so many others like it shows that that is not always true. And I think mm-hmm. that ripples through just the story you share in your book too, of like the misconceptions that we have about the immigrants or others living in, po- living in poverty or the people that want to come here. Like, so I think it's just, it's really, um, it's neat to see how the Lord worked that in your life. Cause I just how and how he used it to give you a greater empathy and understanding um, yes. for that mm-hmm. so i appreciate you sharing that part of your story because i'm sure i'm sure that can be a little humbling i mean if you're not where the lord wants you to be with that that it to admit and you're humbled by that. Yes. Um, so then how far after that? So then tell me how the fostering started. Cause you, like you said, you had to wait to tell them like, we are ready. When, when did you, were you ready? Which you're never ready to foster, but yeah.
1: when did you think you were ready? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we needed to get off of government assistance first um, okay. and that that's a state rule. And I'm very glad that it is one. Yes. Um, and then <clears throat> our daughter was about two when we decided that we were ready. Okay. Um, and so, and all those
0: classes just
1: prepared you for it fully. Right. That's what I always was like, did I learn anything
0: in those classes? (laughs) Like this is not what I thought it was going to be like. So
1: yeah. 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 I'm so glad that we had just such a wonderful community around us. Yes. To to teach us some of the things that we just didn't know or didn't learn in those classes. Or maybe we fell asleep while we were teaching that. Um, yes. Um, But, yeah, so then – so we kind of signed back up in August-ish and kind of did a refresher thing, and then um, we were placed with children in October.
0: Okay, and you actually took two girls, which Mm -hmm. is a huge undertaking, but you wanted – they didn't want to um, separate the siblings, so you took two girls um, in addition to the two that you already have. And I love – in your book, you're very honest, like, and I just – I would say fostering is like probably the hardest thing we've ever done. And it was good, not good, but it was just like to hear you say that after all, you know, the countries you've served, everything you've done, and you're like, yeah, this was probably the hardest. So it made me yeah. feel like, okay, I'm not such a lightweight like, oh, <laughs> like I thought I was because that was really hard. And um, and you share about that in your book. And I know in the beginning of your book, you talk about like people wonder, is this book about fostering or immigrant? Like it's about all of it. Um, it's it's your journey through all of these things. Um, so share a little bit more with us just for those who haven't fostered just about that time in your life and how that just created a lot of family tension in the heart,
1: all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, we had two girls come to the home. One was, um, at the time one was four and one was five, I think. Is that right? Uh, or five and six. I think they yeah. turned five and six when they, once they were in our home. Um, but it was, um, the hardest month of our life, I would say. Um, it was... So challenging in so many different ways, and having four kids in our home, um, one that that probably had some some learning disabilities and was was just really struggling with uh, with school stuff, and so um, there were beha- there was behavioral issues, but then there's also learning issues, and so um, it really took a lot out of us at night. Um, you know, once everyone was back home, not 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 to even mention like the difficulties of of travel and trying to pick everybody up on time from their school and, um, just all the the craziness that is foster care. But, um, but it was, it it turned into a a position of us, um, kind of ignoring a lot of the other needs of all the other children in order to, to help the one child. And so, um, I think everyone suffered in that month. Um, I think, and, you know, certainly providing a safe home that was, that was there. Um, but no one was, was thriving in that safe home. And so that's kind of the, the conundrum of, of this particular issue. And, and I think anyone who ever deals with having to transition a child out of their home, it's, um, it's just such a hard and difficult, um, Decision to come to. Um, it is, and you're
0: so. Again, you're so honest because it. And I, I don't want to have you share how hard it is, so that people don't foster. Because right. I think that we are called um, called to do that. And not everyone's called to foster, but to whether it's helping foster, parent, like respite, all of that. But um, mm-hmm. you're very honest how hard it is. But then also like part of God examining your own, like, okay, there's that, how, how far should we be stretched or how much do you sacrifice? I mean, there is that tension there, but I think, um, as Jesus doesn't ask us to do easy things. So, um, being in it isn't easy, but that doesn't mean you don't do it, but you also have to keep it like you just said, how much you sacrifice for your own family. And, um, there's just so many dynamics. So I encourage people that are foster parents too to read your book because, um, you've been there you're you're you've done it um and it's hard
1: (laughs) it is it's hard and there's and there's no right answer i feel like in these yeah difficult things and i think that's that's probably the one of the maybe one of the themes that comes from the book is that um growing up evangelical i think i was taught that you find the answers to whatever issues you have in life in the bible Mm -hmm. um and what foster care and specifically this, um, situation with, with Julia, um, taught me in in addition to, you know, living in other, other countries is that so much of life is just gray. Um, there are no black and white answers to, to what we should do or what we need to do or what God's will is for us to do. Um, but that God is in the murkiness and, um, And to not be afraid to go there and to not be afraid of places where you know it's going to be murky and you know that you're probably going to make a wrong decision um, here or there and um, someone's going to get hurt in the process. Um, But that's that's where we're that's where we're called to go. And the Bible doesn't necessarily have all the answers, but it teaches us to question the things in the way that brings God glory.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right, and I um, I remember highlighting that in your book because that really spoke to me. That sometimes there's not a right or wrong answer. Often there's not, yeah. um, and it's waiting or it's kind of like you just said, going through the murkiness, um, knowing Jesus is there for us. One of the sin or the excuse me, one of the quotes that I just loved in your book too, um, when you talked about the fostering, you said, "I see my sin more clearly than I ever have, but I also see the kingdom of God more clearly too." and i just thought that was so powerful. um just tell us a little bit dive into that a little bit more like what you meant by that. i mean i know cuz i read read that chapter and i've been there but um talk yeah. about that a little bit more.
1: um this this came from a um this kind of a revelation that happened one day with um the one of my foster daughters um, just kind of feeling like just totally failing at this (laughs) yes (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing I am horrible at this I am mad at everybody um and yeah I just don't know what's going on and so one of the one of the most interesting things I think about foster care is that it revealed to me things within myself that I didn't know were there like gross things like yucky Mm -hmm. sin things of um kind of recognizing the demons within me, um, that came out and, and just having to be face to face with that stuff and to recognize like when we are pushed to a certain point, um, what's going to come out. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think that foster care taught me, um, in so many ways, it showed me a picture of the kingdom of God in, mm. in a worldview that I'd never seen before. I'd never been opened up to before um, and showed me just how intertwined the kingdom of God is with the kingdom of darkness in this earth and, um, and also within me right? And so I've grown up in the church and I've always known Bible verses and I've always known the Lord for my entire life. I don't ever remember a day not knowing God or not knowing Jesus. And so like this stuff is very deep in me and it's who I am. And it's certainly something that I draw on in the midst of these very murky moments, right? But um, there's also this kingdom of darkness that is in me as well and is in the world as well. And so I think I used to think about the kingdom of darkness being, uh, kind of on one side and the kingdom of light being on the other side. Mm -hmm. Um, but now I feel like it's two trees that are whose branches have intertwined and the work of the kingdom of God is intertwining those. Right. And, and, and moving, um, moving one branch away from the other and trying to really see like, okay, where is the darkness in me? And where's the light in me? Um, and I think that is, that is how we bring Shalom. It's not, you know, this like huge thing that we have to do. It's not this ministry that we have to take hold of. It's not being a missionary. It's not being a pastor. It's not being an author. It's, um, it's un um, hinging those, those braided branches of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God and, and not being afraid of either one and saying, Hey, I'm a mess. Yes. (laughs) That's right now. Absolutely. And and that's okay. Um, because right in the middle of my mess is, is the kingdom of God. That's so good. And
0: that is, um, what I think, like what our stories are, if we're really honest and come, you know, get, um, really just vulnerable with them I mean that's what this is and like you said you don't have to have all these just exceptional crazy life stories I mean it is what you just talked about and that's so so powerful to recognize and know um so going back back to fostering you end up with just um like you said for your family and for health of all the kids you um place one of the girls in another home. And so you have your two children, one foster girl that you're making progress with. Um, things are going along as well as they can still like <laughs> lots of stress as of fostering, but right. you've got it down to just the one. And then um, that changes and we'll, we'll move into separated by the border. Like a lot of the story that you tell there um, in addition to the fostering, but what happened um, when you got that phone call in 2017? Is that right? Um, it was in 2018. It was 2018. Okay. Mm-hmm. 2018. I don't know why I noted down 2017, but 2018, you got a phone call and, yep. and that, that changed things again. Tell us yeah. just a little bit about that day and what happened from there.
1: Yeah. So our social worker knew that, um, that Andrew and I both spoke Spanish. Um, she knew that we had lived in Mexico and, um, so that was just kind of always, you know, on the back burner for her. And we had told her if there's ever anything, you know, if there's ever anything like that opportunity or whatever, um, that we were available. And so she had called us, um, a Friday after Well, she called me a Friday afternoon and said, Hey, um, we have, we have a little girl here who only speaks Spanish. And we think that her parents were deported. Um, she should be under ICE custody, um but she doesn't have anywhere to go for the weekend on Monday will be court this is a Friday a Monday court will happen and ICE will come get her in court can you take her for the weekend um and so when she first called I was like oh yeah for a weekend we can totally do four kids for a weekend we did four kids for a month like we can do um and when I called my husband he was like, I doubt this is going to be just for the Yeah. Weekend. So, yeah <laughs> like, he had some wisdom there. He know, knew like, he's always so wise about this stuff and it just kind of makes uh-huh. me angry. But, um, cause I can't see that stuff coming, but he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh no, if ice is involved, like there's no way that it's right. going to stay in the state if it's federal. Right. And so And for those that don't know, what is ICE? ICE is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Okay, yes. Um, And then ORR was also involved, which is um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Okay. Unaccompanied minors are under the care of Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, But then sometimes ICE might also be involved. So if there was a deportation that happened, then ICE would potentially be involved as well. Okay. Um, So... Um, There was an ICE officer there, um, but the state insisted that they had paperwork, um, and I'm glad that they did. Um, And so, because they didn't have the paperwork, they said, okay, we'll meet you in court on Monday and bring the paperwork then. Um, Okay, so you thought just for a weekend,
0: and Mm -hmm. they're involved. So... Before this, were you involved in awareness, um, like deeper involved with like the immigration, the border crisis, what was going on there? Or were you just kind of like whatever you saw in the news? What was your involvement with um,
1: knowing what was going on there? So at the time, um, so this was February and um, 2018, and zero tolerance policy had not been publicly announced until April. So there wasn't the, at at least at that time, there was definitely stuff happening at the border, but it wasn't the actual pulling away um, children from families uh, like we saw happen uh, during that summer. Um, And so I was, I was marginally aware of what was going on. Um, I have always been interested in immigration issues. And so that was something that was on my radar. Um, I also knew that um, the administration was not, being very kind at all to, or even humanizing immigrants, and so um, that th- I, I struggled with that, um, and and a lot of that really was because of my friends in Mexico and Central America who, um, when the administration be- got in power, were like, "How could you guys? How could you guys yeah. do this?" Yes. Um, so, anyways, so. Um, when she came into to our home, we had just planned it was going to be the weekend. We had a birthday party to go to. We went to the birthday party. Everything was great. Um, and then on Monday, um, we showed up in court. I took the day off of work. Her and I went to court and um, none of the federal agencies mm-hmm. showed up. Hmm. And so then they're like, "Okay, courts re- adjourn for next Monday." <laughs> <laughs> you're like, "Wait, whoa <laughs> uh, so uh. at the time um, a lot of times in foster care, excuse my voice um the it takes a little while, so she was she was five at the time, but she was not old enough to go to kindergarten. <clears throat> And so we needed to find a daycare for her. Um, And so with foster care, a lot of times, like certain daycares will take the vouchers and certain ones won't. And so you really have to like find your spot if you're trying to get a child into a daycare. And so it took a while um, and it had, because we had been through this before, I knew that it was going to take a little while. So I was like, okay, well, if they don't show up in court the following Monday, um, then we're really going to be like, I'm going to be out of work for a while and this is not going to be good. Right. And so I went ahead and like started looking for daycares for her to attend. Um, and so we found one and she actually started um, the Friday after nobody showed up in court that first Monday, she started a daycare on Friday and we thought, well, she might be leaving on Monday. Um, but Monday we showed up again in court and nobody was there again. And so, um, so, so the state was like, okay, well, she is now officially in state custody and um, and is going to stay with you. Um, and basically said, okay, what do you want to do? We know that you have two kids in your home now. And we know that that was too much for you guys to do, um, try to figure out what you, what you can do. And so, um, the two girls lived together in the same room. They didn't speak the language, like one spoke Spanish, one spoke English. And so it was ridiculous and hilarious. Looking yeah. back on it. <laughs> like, hilarious. is this my real life? Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> Like, is there a hidden camera somewhere? Like I'm being punked right now. Um mm-hmm. so they would like fight with each other in different languages and um sometimes we would be translating their arguments. Um mm-hmm. so um but it just, it it got to be too much. And we, we tried, I was like, we're going to try, we're going to make this happen. It's going to happen. Um, I don't want to get rid of, you know, I don't want to either one to leave. Right. Um, and it just was dragging us down again. And um, there were a couple of moments where um, our, my son just kind of fell apart and uh, it was just very clear. Like we can't, we can't do this. It's not, no one's flourishing. Um, and, and every, I think every child deserves to flourish and I'm not saying that it's always going to be able to happen. Um, but, but I do think everyone deserves that. Um, and so we, right. um, And you had options. I mean, you had options. You knew the other
0: girl was going to right. go to a good home. It wasn't, that's you're right. not just throwing her back into a group right. home. I mean, you had really good options and yep. so you were carefully yep. doing what was best for all of your, the children.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And at at that time, um, we not long before then, I think we made contact with, um, Julia's mom and found out more of her story. We thought that they were deported, but that's not what actually happened. Um, and so we were able to kind of realize, um, okay, this is, this is going to end in reunification. Um, this child needs to get back to her mother. Her mother is safe and appropriate and loves her and misses her. And, um, we weren't really sure for a long time what, what that situation was going to be. And so, um, so then from there, um, we just worked really hard to, to get her back, um, back to her mom. And,
0: Your book goes into a lot of detail, which is just incredible. I mean, it's, uh, it just opened your heart so much. Like you think, you know, stories, but then it's like, oh my goodness, to hear like what her mom went through. I mean, at the age of 13, living in Honduras, how she ended up at the border trying Mm -hmm. to cross because we think. If you're just listening to the media and sound bites, oh, mm-hmm. God bless you. You need to, but anyway. Anyway, that's another story. Um, But it's like to really get in and see why her mom was wanting to cross the border and what she went through to get there. And then what, I mean, it's just, I won't go into details because I want people to read your book, but my gosh, you've got to read to hear what the stories that are getting people there. It's not Mm -hmm. just like they're lazy in their own country or they just Mm -hmm. think there's a little bit something better. Like there's so many layers and so Mm -hmm. much just, um, I mean, it's such a humanitarian crisis that Mm -hmm. if you don't know the stories, you're just, you're not going to care. And so you need, you need to know the stories and that is what your book does and shows how your stories intertwined. Um, tell us though, a little bit, just, you know, Julia, she had so much trauma coming to you. Can you tell a little bit what she endured getting to you, um, just from the ride to the border, like, and where she was first place in the United States, just, can you tell a little bit about that, just the trauma that she had?
1: So she, um in, in Mexico, um, on the way up to the border, she had, uh, ridden with her, with her mom and her stepdad, um, in the back of a, a tractor trailer, um, truck. And so, um, it was very dark and, um, at times either really cold or really hot in the back of the truck. Um, and there was, a, there was a lot, um, there's a lot of trauma that happened there. And then, and, and really there's, there's quite a bit of it that, that I don't even know. And I might never know. Um, and then she was separated first from her mom, um, and then from her stepdad. And then she was placed into, um, a sponsorship family home, which was actually her stepdad's sister's home. Um, but that home neglected her. Mm -hmm. She was left alone. Um, and and that that's also kind of a tricky situation because um in Honduras it's not it's not unheard of to leave a five year old home if you're at work. Um, right. a five year old can and she, she came to our home, she knew how to cook, um, she was ready to cook. <laughs> and yeah. I was I had to have conversations with her about how she couldn't do that in our home. Um and so I, I also feel for um her aunts she called her aunts because they they both worked and um and this whole sponsorship family like how the system works is very challenging as well and um she was she was connected to them through her stepdad um but they each had their own children and they were both single moms they were living together and they worked a lot and their kids went to school and so what do you do um when I don't know if they're undocumented. I have no idea what their status was, but what do you do when you maybe don't speak the language very well and you have a new child in your home and you don't know if they're allowed to go to school or if they have to wait until they're five, you think that they absolutely have to wait until they're five and you don't have money to send them to daycare. Um, so it's just a really, like you said, there's just so many different layers to all of this. Um, and so when she, when she was left, um, in their home, she would try to, to get out and find neighbors that would, that she could hang out with. And so, um, one day she was, she was looking for a neighbor to hang out with and another neighbor saw her just kind of roaming the streets and called the police. And so that's how she ended up at, at DSS. Um, and, um, because otherwise she would have
0: just left, been left with the sponsors there. Right. right. Is that indefinitely? Like she'd have grown up here and just left there. Um, and it's not like when you foster, like they're checking in on you. Like they're just like,
1: assume you're fine. That's right. And Um, it's not like when you foster, you get money for it. They don't get money for it. Yeah.
0: That's what I was shocked. Like here's another mouth to feed. You're already like living below the poverty level. Yeah. Which is just, I, I'm somewhat educated and I had no idea this, the degree, the layers of like complexities with this. Yeah. Um, so going back real quick, um, just so people are wondering like, why did she get taken from her mom and dad or stepdad? Mm-hmm. So her stepdad did not have the documentation needed to prove that he was really her stepdad. So the, uh, the authorities thought maybe he, he was trafficking her. That's um, what, that's what that, we
1: assume. Okay. Um, we're not a hundred percent sure that it, so there's a couple of different potentials there. Um, so he, he was her official stepdad. His name is on her birth certificate, so in Honduras um that is an official um stepdad status right, right. but in the states that's not a, that's not um automatically proof that he was her stepdad okay um and so Um, that's an issue. Um, another issue is that at the, at the time, the zero tolerance policy was happening. So she came across, you probably had 2017 in your notes because she came across the border in 2017. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. It was either the end of October or the beginning of November when they tried to cross the border. And so, um, prior to arriving at the border, her mother was held against her will, um, by the smugglers that they had paid yeah. to bring them across the border which they paid
0: $7,500 is mm-hmm. that right like that that blows my mind like mm-hmm. they're giving everything they have yep and her mom was so desperate to get here because she was taking care of her grandpa getting mm-hmm. him medication i mean getting to get him medication and okay. I mean, they pay so much. Not only are they just risking their life for a horrific journey, but they're paying everything they have. And then the smugglers are treating them awful. Yep. Yep. So the smugglers abducted her, who is mom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so she just had a horrific experience and um, mm-hmm. like you share in your book you're really sensitive to as well like not wanting to her to relive that because she shared with you these things mm-hmm. um, and was okay with you writing the book um, mm-hmm. you share a little bit too this goes off but it's reminding me like you struggled for some reasons to write this book go, mm-hmm. go into that why you kind of just had this tension
1: with that um, well this is uh, the, all of this is very delicate stuff, yeah. um, and as a writer myself, even though part of the story is mine it 's not all mine yeah. um, it 's julia 's story, and it 's lupe 's story and so, when I first approached Lupe to find out if she would be okay with me sharing this in a book, um, she she was very excited about the opportunity to mm-hmm. share which surprised me. I thought that she would, um, I just didn't think that would be her reaction. Um, and she, her, her response to me was, I want to help other Central American women, um, to really understand the choice that they have to make. And I want to help Americans to understand, um, the story behind, you know, what's happening at the border. Yeah. Um, and so that's just, that's heavy stuff it's and it's really and it's heavy. not my stuff. Yeah. Um, and I also want to be aware that, uh, I'm a white woman telling the story of what happens to Brown bodies. And, um, sadly, in some ways that means more white people will hear. Um, and that's not fair. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, uh, it's its own injustice, right? Um, yes. and on the other hand, um, her story is important and she wants it to be heard. And, um, in order for it to get to the channels, um, for people to hear it, I have the privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just this very weird tension of, I'm telling a story that's partly mine. And, um, Largely not. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think
0: that's a really important and thoughtful aspect that you brought up um, with that. And I think something that we need to think about and be aware of. Um, but what I did love is how you tied it together. Um, you said both mothers what it really, you know, it's the way your story is intertwined. And it's about two moms fighting daily for our children to live in a better world. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's, although, um, you know, her story is so different from ours, but we both were moms Mm -hmm. and, And it helped us. um, We all want for our children to live in a better world. And what would we do in her shoes? So I think hearing that just gives us such a new level of empathy and understanding. Um,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Like I said, there's so many ways I could just talk to you (laughs) a lot. I mean, there's so many directions of this story in hers. So, Mm. um, I know we don't have another hour to talk. So Mm. with Julia, um, you did start, she started talking to her mom, you got her connected to her. Um, she was having conversations, um, kind of take it from there of how that progressed into ultimately, um, you got her back to her mom.
1: Yeah. So it was, um, It was clear the very first video chat that they had that this was a very healthy relationship between a mother and a daughter. Um, she, Julia was so excited to see her mom, so excited to show her where she was living. Um, she (sighs) pranced around the house like a princess and showed off her bedroom and her blankets and her stuffed animals and, um, the TV. And she was like, mom, look at where I'm living. And, um, it was just like, Uh, I I mean, it was, it was as if, uh, I was talking to my son when I was on a trip. Right. And so, um, it was so clear from the very beginning, um, that this was not any kind of, um, situation in which reunification shouldn't happen. Um, you know, from foster care, being in foster as foster parents, like we're often kind of ready for, um. You know all the different things that the biological parents need to do um to kind of get back uh, on the track right for their kids to be returned um and in this situation it wasn't it wasn't a situation like that um it wasn't your typical foster care right they didn't so, have to get clean they didn't have to mean right everyone. right they didn't need parenting classes um right. all that kind of stuff and so um So in talking to social workers about all of this, uh, as we did often, it was, um, okay, how do we get them reunified? How do we get a a home study done in Honduras to bring to the court in, you know, this County in North Carolina, um, somehow it just seems completely so strange that a, a judge in North Carolina had the right to determine the fate of a child, um, who lived in Honduras. And, um, that just, that whole process just seemed completely, um, yeah, just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But that's, but that's how it was, you know, with foster care, you have to go through these certain, certain hoops. And so any child that comes into DSS custody has to go through this, um, So it was step one was getting, um, the judge to sign off on reunification and that, um, that actually took help from the Honduran consulate so that they could have somebody go, um, do a home study in the home in Honduras. And then from there, um, once that was signed off, which happened, I think in May, um, it took another month to get the Honduran consulate to get the paperwork that they needed um, to give us, cause my husband and I were able to travel back with Julia, um, okay. to Honduras. And so because she traveled here without papers, um, she needed papers to get her back to Honduras. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, because she was was, like, I mean,
0: you guys weren't an ab- and you guys were an advocate for her. I mean, I hate to think that you just like waited for
1: <laughs> the state to do
0: whatever they thought, you know, it's like you guys definitely were an advocates for the reunification and worked hard to get her back with her mom.
1: Yeah, we, we did. And the consulate, um, the people at the consulate preferred to speak Spanish and because I spoke Spanish, it was a lot of communication between me and the consulate rather than, um, the social workers in the consulate. Cause the social workers that I worked with, they had one translator, but she was like, it was, um, you know, she was being pulled in a lot of different directions yes. for different things. And so, um, so it worked out well to be able to, to advocate in that way. Um, and and to kind of push things forward as much as I could. So, And so
0: tell me about that day going back, you know, you're on the airplane ride and I know that still was stressful in itself, wondering with all the stops, is this going to happen? But just tell me about that day and when she saw her mom and just all the emotions. Oh man. (laughs) I can't, I can't even like reading about it is like enough, (laughs) but being there
1: like, wow. Yeah, it was, um, Oh, gosh. It was um, just beautiful. Yeah. It was beautiful. Um, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to articulate, I'm sure. Yeah. It is. And it's, uh, even now, just get emotional about it because yeah. there are so many kids who don't get to have that reunion. Yeah. I know. And, and that it's so necessary. Like, that's, that's what they deserve, right? Like they, they need to be back in their, in their parents' arms. Um, so we were at the airport, um, when we met Lupe and, um, (laughs) julia was like jumping up and down when she when we finally saw her car um time has a different meaning in honduras and so when i talked to her on the telephone she was like we'll we'll be there in five minutes well five minutes turn into 35 minutes um and you know this is a moment that we're like we've been like building up for (laughs) and so it couldn't come you know quick enough for any of us but um julia was just like jumping up and down, she saw her mom and she kind of Mm. looked at me like, can I run out to her? And I was like, yes, go run. Um, and so she ran out to her mom and, um, uh, Lupe just scooped her up and, um, Mm. they just held each other for a long time. Um, and she told me later, Lupe told me later that she, when she first heard, um, that the police had taken Julia, that she thought she would never see her daughter again. Mm and that's i mean that's probably what
0: most of those parents and moms believed i'm guessing Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. tell me that i mean what is the status of all this so like you were just saying like all these kids deserve to be back with their parents like are there still you're in this you you went to the border you um visited immigration detention facility like what is the status these other kids were a lot placed in foster care are they still in detention centers like where are we
1: at with all this um, well, what you saw and know. I, I, what I do know is that, um, this past January, there was an audit done by the office of inspector general, and they found, um, that there was 2,700 and I think 37 children that were separated during the zero tolerance policy. Okay. And that was between April and June of twenty eighteen, so just like six months time, about mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, not even mm-hmm. okay, yeah, yeah, and, yeah.
0: and um, but they also found that children. Oh yeah, not separated. even. Sorry, M- mm-hmm. bad math. I yeah. was just like, like no, no okay. like three
1: months. Like that's a short period. Okay, mm-hmm. so that many yep. kids. So yeah. that's that's when it was at its height, um, okay. and then, but the, they also found that thousands of children had been separated prior to, mm-hmm. but they don't know the number um and they also found that hundreds have been separated after um and so there's still reports coming right now saying that children are being separated um i don't know the details of that i can't find any um public information specifically about that um but I know that it's still happening. And I mean,
0: this is a whole other show, but the Trump administration, I mean, they are saying that they did put the zeal tolerance and in effect to deter people from doing it, knowing that they would like families would be separated and all that. Um, And then they lifted that, but you're saying, but it's still happening. And the ramifications yeah, yeah. are still happening. I mean, goodness.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, there are also reports done by like, um, kind kids in need of defense, um, that this is actually something that's been happening for years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that they, different administrations, not just the Trump administration, but the Obama administration as well, um, had done as a deterrent Interesting. and, um, so yeah, it is. It's just it's it's really interesting that um it's not just happening now, it wasn't just during this time and certainly I I think, I believe, that a lot of the, the pressure that was put on the administration to end it um really helped, but um but it's still something that's happening now. And Yeah, and one one of
0: your stats I think it's yeah, said six million um children in the United citizen children under age eighteen live with a parent here that's undocumented, Mm. um, which is just, yeah, I mean, there's so many layers to this crisis goodness, but it is so not a black and white issue. And I think that's the biggest thing, um, that as Christians, one, we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of the stories. Um, and, you list some ways. So you have a website um, and in the back of your book, you list like, what can we do? So, okay. So we start educating ourselves and knowing the stories, then what, I mean, because you can feel very powerless, but I also know as Christians, like we are called to do more. Yeah. So tell us, I mean, I know some of the ways, but you verbalize some of the ways that we can get more involved and do more. Sure.
1: Um, yeah, like you said, you know, get, get educated on what's going on, um, pay attention to what's happening. Certainly, um, connect with your representative, um, whoever they might be in the house and then also Congress and make your voice heard constantly and often. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you that cause people think I've had people like, does that really make a difference? So I, touch on that a little bit, does so it? And, I,
0: and what do you do to connect with them?
1: Yeah. So I mostly just leave messages on their answering machine, um, or sometimes every once in a while I'll tweet at them, but, um, but most of the time I leave messages and I have heard from, from advocates who work, um, on the Hill that that is a huge thing that they really do listen to that. Um, but I don't have experience in that realm. Um, so I'm just, I'm just going to, you're just going to do it. it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and I think, you know, I think really one of the biggest things, one of the things I talk about a lot in my first book is the concept of biblical justice. And justice really comes from and stems from um relationships. And um so if we are not in relationship with immigrants, if we are not listening to the voices that aren't our own. Um then it's really hard to, to seek justice for people. Um, and so I think building relationships with, with immigrants, whether that's, you know, one-on-one or an immigrant church or community or, um, organization, um, building those relationships are huge and help us to better understand what's going on. Cause like, like I talked about, you know, I'm, I'm seven degrees removed from this now at this Mm -hmm. point. And so I don't have to know the numbers of the kids being separated, but I still should, you know, um, and that, that distance there is, is pretty big. And so being proximate, like Michelle Warren talks about in her book, being proximate to people, um, is, is a giant step in the right direction, um, yeah, I, yeah, I,
0: to- I totally agree. And I, one of the earlier podcasts I did was with the lady that started a program called neighbors here in the Tulsa area with mm-hmm. immigrants. And I bet so many communities, um, have that if people do a little bit of searching on how to get involved, because mm-hmm. it's easy to say, well, I don't have any around me. We all, yes, you do. Yeah, <laughs> Like, yeah, yes. you do. Wherever you're at in the United States, you have more than you realize that you can get involved and know. Um, so tell me too. like I saw on your website, um, one of the things listed is to do like one of those, um, I don't want to, what do you call it? Like a tour of, not a tour of the border, but, um, yeah. Like like a border visit. So what, tell me what you think about those. Like, cause I don't, I was looking at that for me, my daughter, I don't want it to be like, Oh, this is like a touristy observance. Like, is that a good thing? Is that something you recommend? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Um, I think that you really have to pay attention to who you're going with mm-hmm. and, you know, the organization behind it. Um, I, I, I did get get to go. Um, I went with, um, national immigration forum and, um, CCDA, uh, and world relief. They kind of all were a part of this, this one trip. Um, and so those are all organizations that I, um, that I know are doing this work and have been doing this work for a long time. So it's not just all of a sudden, you know? Okay. Um, and I think that, You just have to, just like, you know, with short-term mission strips, there can be good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. And it's not so much the doing that's the problem. It's how it's being done. Um, That can be an issue. Okay. And you do list a couple of places,
0: like I said, on your website um, that are good to look into. And you have tell us where you can be found because on your website you do have um, a lot of good resources and books and other listening, other podcasts. Um, and, uh-huh. way, and another thing you have, I mean, you have something as similar as like an, or as simple as like an Amazon list to mm-hmm. help um, to buy things for, mm-hmm. for those. Is it for the detention centers or who is that for? Like the Amazon list.
1: That's for um, an organization that, um, that works. Okay. It's like a migrant house gotcha. um, kind of thing. And so, yeah. Okay. Um, So
0: all of those are legit ways to help. So tell us where where you can be found and we'll put it on the show notes too, but I think you have a great list
1: there. Thank you. Um, it's Gina So it's G E A Thomas.com. Um, and I am mostly on Twitter, but I'm on the other social social sites too. Um, but Twitter is Gina L Thomas, um, G N A L Thomas. But yeah, I really like connecting with people. And, um, and if people have questions about you know, border trips and stuff. I've been kind of fielding a lot of those lately. So. Okay. Well, I might talk to you more about that in
0: in detail because I'm very um, much interested in that. And like we said, you have two books, um, A Smoldering Wick, which was your first book and then Separated Mm -hmm. by the Border. What we've talked a little bit more about today comes out October 29th. And We'll put links to both of those. And I just, I cannot encourage people enough to read Separated by the Border. I mean, we've just touched the surface here today because you go so much into, which I think is so important, like the snapshot of Honduras, like what's going on there? What did our government do? What did these banana companies? Just stuff that we don't know. Yeah. And if you don't know, you cannot emphasize and understand the plight of these people. we still can't because we're not in it, but you can understand a little bit more. And that is what makes you want to know, um, and get involved and yeah. know that these, these are our neighbors and this is who God calls us to love and Amen. to help. Amen. Well, Gina, thank you so much. I mean, again, you've, you've already given me more time than I asked for, so I'm sorry to keep talking at you, but goodness, I could talk to you all day. I just mm-hmm. appreciate so much. You just sharing your experience, um, and those with, with our neighbors that are, are, are trying to just do what's best for their children too. So thank you again, Gina. Thank you. really appreciate it. Although Gina's book, Separated by the Border, doesn't release until next month. It's one you need to go put in your Amazon cart today. One review of her book said, if we want to understand how the policies and politics of the immigration debate impact real people, this is the place to start. This is a humanizing story that takes us beyond the talking points. I couldn't agree more with this reviewer. I know for me, the more stories I hear, the more my compassion is ignited, and the more I can love like Jesus, the people whose lives and stories are different than mine. We have to go beyond the news clips and political reads and learn the stories behind the statistics. I encourage you not only to share this episode with a friend, but start your own journey of digging deeper out of your own comfort zone to connect with the truth that's so often found in the margins.